0: But you know no good and camp. You're listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the makes and, and line. My play cousin, the right reverend. Christopher Butler. Well, Chris, I want to start this episode off with an apology to our audience, because usually we like to get to them immediately. I know it's been a week since the midterms. I know folks have been waiting to hear what we have to say. And unfortunately, because of schedules and flights and all this other stuff, we couldn't get to you immediately. Mostly it's my fault. I was I was traveling most of the week last week. But I promise you that you're going to enjoy this episode. Uh, We always want to get to you as quickly as possible. Doesn't happen at all, you know every time, but just know that we are committed to getting you some analysis as soon as we can. It was just a rough week last week, but uh, this episode will be well worth it. A- any thoughts on that, Chris?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think we took some time. I think it's helpful because we could have got on here quickly. Some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, we wouldn't have known if we went right away. You know, so I, I agree with you. I think it's it's going to be worthwhile to get what we have today. I think we, we will have some some extra stuff coming for uh, our patrons. Uh, especially. So we'll be getting into it.
0: Yeah, fun. you make a really good point, Chris, because I actually did um, a brief show on the, the Christianity Today has a new podcast called The Bulletin, where they give, you know, kind of like a, a meet the press feel. And so I was on there with Dr. Moore, I was on there with uh, Michael Ware and some other folks. And that was part of what I was saying. I was like, it's kind of too early, right? Uh, and this was on Thursday, this wasn't even Wednesday, but there were still races ongoing. You know the numbers hadn't come out of who voted when. You know there there just wasn't enough time to really know exactly what happened. So so I agree with you. This this does give us some time to reflect, to get more information, to give you a better analysis. Uh, and so get ready for this. I think I think you'll enjoy it. As always, before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, uh, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Uh, we greatly appreciate that partnership and want to let people know the. Uh, application is open for the Christian Civic Leadership Academy. All right, that'll get started in April. If you go to our website, andcampaign.org, that application is open now. So if you want to run for office, if you want to know how to run campaigns, you just want to understand politics better and really start getting engaged, then you need to apply for the and campaign's Christian Civic Leadership Academy. Uh, we had our first cohort last year, and I think it went really well. And would want some of y'all Christians uh, to join that and get an opportunity to learn from some great minds and really learn the X's and O's, the ethics and the theology behind how Christians should be engaging. Well, you know what it is, as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. So let's talk about it, Chris. The red wave that never was. The phantom Crimson Tide. The scarlet storm that never touched down. Now, it was indeed predicted, Chris, by prognosticators far and wide that the Republican Party would take over the federal government in the fashion of some type of tsunami. Right. Leaving nothing but broken down dead donkeys in its wake. But it didn't turn out that way. Dr. Oz lost in Pennsylvania, Blake Masters lost in Arizona, Uh, Adam Laxalt lost in Nevada, and the Democrats maintained control of the Senate. Um, Now, even the gains in the House of Representatives when it comes to uh, the Republicans were much less than expected. There just wasn't a red wave that we heard so much about. Now, as it stands, Chris, Democrats have 50 seats in the Senate to the Republicans, 49 seats. Uh, there is no chance of the Republicans having the majority over over 51. Now, the Georgia runoff between Senator Ralph Warnock and uh, Herschel Walker is going to be very important when it comes to judicial nominations and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, the Republicans were not able to take over the Senate. In the House, the Republicans have 217 seats right now to the Democrats, 205 seats. Republicans are expected to get just past that 218 mark to have a slim majority in the House, which is consequential. Right. I I don't want to overlook that. It, It is very consequential. But what these results mean, Chris, is that some commentators will be eating crow for Thanksgiving. Uh, There was a a lot of big talk that just did not happen. A lot of pollsters seem to have overcorrected from the past and weighed Republicans in their polls too heavily. So they expected more Republicans than turned out because in the past, over and over again, they weren't giving enough weight to the Republican vote. And I think this time uh, they overcorrected. Now, as for myself, Chris, uh, I'm not going to cap. I wasn't perfect. I expected a red wave, too. Now, I will say this. I did call the Georgia races correctly. I got I got my home state correctly. Um, but based on the historical trends, uh, based on Biden's low favorability, based on the economy, based on inflation, I expected Republicans to have a much, much better showing than they did, at least in the House. Now, I will say, Chris, I never bought the idea that the Republicans were going to take the Senate. I thought the candidates were too bad. We'll talk about that a little later. I never really bought into that. And some people were saying that they could you know, be up to as many as 53 seats. And now we see them struggling at 49, trying to get into that 50 again, which, again, doesn't give them control because the vice president comes in in a tie and is the deciding vote. I was surprised and even towards the end, I was surprised at the confidence and stridency about victory that. That I heard from a lot of conservative commentators that I follow, you know, from Eric Ericksons and folks like that. These folks were certain that this was going to be a red wave and kind of selling some wolf tickets in that regard. I I, I thought it was a little excessive and unfounded based on what I was seeing. And again, based on uh the dynamics of these races. Now, in regard to the Senate, Chris, I think the the failed red wave comes down to about four things. Um, Number one is bad candidates. Dr. Oz didn't even live in Pennsylvania. He he lived in New Jersey, and he was so out of touch with voters that it was ridiculous. Herschel Walker, and I've said this before, is quite possibly the worst Senate candidate that I've ever seen in my lifetime. I truly believe that if if Senator Warnock runs against a kind of normie Republican who hasn't paid for multiple abortions, who doesn't pull out a sheriff's badge during the debate, he probably loses handily. And that's not to say that Warnock, I think Warnock actually ran a pretty good race. You know, I have my issues there, too. I think he ran a pretty good race. But if you get somebody who's a little more savvy, uh, who can articulate themselves a little better, who connects a little better, who isn't just put out there for hypocrisy over and over again. I think he struggles just based off where the the state is right now. Uh I'd also give a side note that I thought a lot of the uh, the 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 stop the still governors were terrible candidates too. So basically what happens is that what happened is the Republican base made sure that Christmas came early for Democrats during the primaries. Christmas came during the primaries for uh the Democrats and we saw that uh, come come into play now. Uh, They basically guaranteed their own demise. Now, number two, I thought what we saw was a rejection of election denialism and a rejection of the spirit of January 6th. I think people are sick of disorder. I think people are sick of dysfunction. And if you think about it, this is the first federal election since January 6th, if if I'm not mistaken. If you think about it that way, the Dems probably should have should have had a better day than they did this time around. I mean, I can say as far as the black community, the communication that was going on was basically what you heard over and over again is these jokers really tried to overthrow the government. That was the narrative you heard over and over. And when people were going out and they were doing, you know, get out the vote efforts and all that stuff, that was what you were hearing. Um, and it may not have showed up in all the polls, but now that I think back, That was just the ongoing thing that I heard. Now, something that surprised me, Chris, and you might have caught on to this, you might have anticipated it. The youth vote was a big part of this. Uh, This was the second biggest youth turnout in 50 years. The first biggest was in 2008 in the last 50 years. 27% of voters between the ages of 18 and I think 29 voted in this midterm election. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot compared to what usually comes out. And 60 percent of that group voted for the Democrats. And so when you look at what happened in states like Arizona, it made a world of difference. All right. The last two, two things I think played a role was abortion and the Dobbs decision. Now The overturning of Roe did motivate a lot of uh, Democrats to come out. Uh, it may have motivated some independents who seemed to go uh, to the left to come out. Um, that's something I was hoping wouldn't have a, a bit as big of an effect because we obviously support that ruling. But it did. And I think part of that is the craziness that you saw from some Republicans in response to that floating ridiculous proposals about abortion that I think really caused a lot of people to uh, to react in that way. And then lastly, Chris, I think I would also say. That early voting played a big role in this. Democrats dominated early voting and voted in large numbers. And if I'm not mistaken, if you look at places like Nevada, when Republicans are are, are, are depending just on day of voting, well, what if it gets cold? What if there's a rainstorm? Something like that, I believe, happened in Nevada and could have actually impacted that race. Or when lines are long and you drive past and you're waiting to the last day, you just keep going. Right. So these are things that could have played a role in it. I'll say this, though. I expected the economy and inflation to play a bigger role. I think they didn't play it. They didn't overwhelm all the other issues. I think they played a role, but they didn't overwhelm all the other issues. Partly because Republicans didn't have a plan. They talked about inflation. They blamed it on Democrats, but they didn't really come up with any solutions. And some of that was by design. You had somebody like Senator Mitch McConnell, who's the leader, uh, Republican leader in the Senate, basically say, I'm not going to come up with any plan because I can just blame it on Democrats. And if I have a plan, then they can pick apart my plan. Well, I said this on Twitter the other day. I think that's political malpractice. I think when people are suffering, the economy's hurting people, inflation's hurting people. They can't buy groceries. They can't get gas. You have to. You're in office to come up with solutions. To not come up with a solution is awful. Now, the response that I got from a lot of people who obviously don't like Democrats was, well, what about what Biden did or didn't do? You don't have to agree with Biden's policy or the administration's policy, but they got to come up with a policy. That's what you're there for. And it's very cynical to not come up with anything. I I really I really have a problem with that. But but, Chris, let's get to your analysis. What 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 did you find uh, was the key to this election and what surprised you?
1: Yeah, there there were a, a few things that I. I think we should take away from uh, this election. I, I will say on a couple of the things that that you were talking about, the youth vote ge- genuinely surprised me. I, I spent a lot of my early career working, you know, uh, coordinating youth, young adults for Barack Obama and his Senate campaign, uh, you know, running Rock the Vote in Chicago. And so. I don't know about you, but I didn't really see any of that kind of like super organized energy. Like in 2008, that was the culmination of four years of really intentional work to, you know, boost youth turnout. And I didn't see any of that. Uh, And so one of the reasons I did anticipate a red wave is that I did not think the youth vote uh, was going to be there in any significant way because of the fact that I, I just didn't see. Personally, uh, much of that activity. Now, maybe that might be because I'm neither in that age group or, uh, working in that space anymore. So it could all be happening. And I just don't even, uh, know that it's happening, but that, that was probably the biggest surprise. Um, for me, I, I think one thing I did, uh, consistently get right on the economy stuff is that while we have this like crazy inflation, we have a, a a strong jobs market, right? So people are still feeling a level of labor strength. When I I talk about labor, I'm not not just talking about, uh, you know, uh, labor unions and organized labor, but just, you know, from a a broader perspective of working people, people feeling like, you know, I can go out and get a job. If I don't like the job that I'm in, maybe I can uh, quit this job and go get another one. and and we haven't had an environment where you have this terrible inflation, which people are feeling, um, but that's kind of like bumping up against this jobs thing. Uh, and so I think that's just something for us to think about. Uh, those of us who like are in politics, want to design elections and those types of things, to think about what is that relationship between kind of like broader economic uh, trends and the actual jobs numbers. Because I think. I think it may be more than is the economy stupid. It may be is the jobs numbers stupid. So you know, we I, I don't know for sure, but uh, those that's that's one thing. Um, for me, one of the things that was really interesting is that I felt like you saw um, a return to kind of like regional and local politics, right? Um, because we didn't get a red wave, but if the red wave was not manifesting with this kind of significance then you may have seen, you may have anticipated like a a blue wave, but you actually had places in the country where Republicans cleaned up, uh, New York, uh, Florida, obviously uh, Republicans did well. Republicans even made gains at the House level uh, in places where you wouldn't have anticipated them to make gains in the House uh, all over California and in places where they didn't really win races. Uh, like my home state of Illinois, I was looking at numbers in New Jersey. There are a lot of places where they didn't win races, but they really made gains. I mean, you, you saw uh, districts, the district that I ran in, um, in the first district of Illinois, which is usually like a, uh, you know, a, a plus, you know, 35, plus 40 Democratic district. This district came up plus 30, like almost a 15, 15 point move toward Republicans. And, and I mean, The candidate here is, you know, we won't talk about the candidate, not a really strong candidate on our side. Um, And and so there was a lot of movement in different places in the country. But then you go across the industrial uh, Northwest. And like, as you talked about, Democrats are cleaning up, cleaning up in the House. One, all of the Senate toss ups. I mean, every single one of them killed it in in a lot of these local legislatures. Uh, So there's kind of like regional thing in terms of the outcome. You also see regional Uh, turnout numbers, right? So you have uh, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, record high turnout. In West Virginia, Mississippi, Maryland, historically low turnout, Uh, right? So the turnout numbers are very different across the country. The the outcomes are different across the country. Um, I do think that youth vote is the great equalizer, but even that, you saw that concentrated um, in specific areas uh, around the country. And so there's like a, a return to this kind of like local and regional politics that I, I honestly thought was gone. Um, but, you know, here we are. And then the second thing that I thought was it was important was the the Democratic meddling in GOP primaries. Democrats spent a ton of money in Republican primaries to actually boost What they thought were bad candidates, and I think what turned out to be bad candidates, you can't completely absolve, you know, the primary voter. But there was a concentrated effort in states all over the country to get especially Senate candidates and gubernatorial candidates uh, who were, you know, Complete election deniers uh, who were vocally extreme on abortion issues and, and honestly not that skilled in having a conversation about the issue um, and just, you know, overall bad candidates. And and in practically every place where Democrats boosted a, a Republican candidate and got their candidate, uh, they end up beating that candidate. And now for me, Justin, that feels a little sleazy and like just like a little bit like bad form uh, in politics for one party to to be spending that kind of money and that kind of concentrated effort in the, in the other party, um, you know, it, it smacks of some kind of inappropriate uh, intervention. And also, as we have talked about previously on this show, we got election results that showed that the Democrats won all these uh, seats, but that does not remove the possibility that existed all the way up until this point, uh, that one of those folks who is an election denier, does end up being a secretary of state somewhere going into a presidential election cycle, does end up being a governor somewhere going into a presidential election cycle. Uh, And so I still think on the whole, I don't like it, you know, but we have a structure right now that frankly, I think just gives way too much party to political parties, too much power to political parties uh, and to to big donors. Um, And so I, I think that you have to be doing something like that. And then I'll close in the same place where you did on the life issue. I think, you know, what I would say to fellow pro-life advocates is that we have a lot of culture-making to do before we can do some strong making. You know, I think you, you, we won uh, an important victory uh, in the Supreme Court, and I, I still think that, that that was an important thing. Uh, it was a, a victory notched for the pro-life movement. But if we don't start to get some wins in the inner chambers of people's hearts, uh, I don't know that we can even hold on too long to the victory that we gained in the Dobbs decision. Uh, and then making any further policy, uh, on this issue is going to be very, very difficult if we don't learn to do culture making, uh, which is, which is different from policy making. Uh, and I think it takes, it's a different skill set. Uh, it takes, I think maybe a different, um, approach, uh, to leadership and maybe some different leaders, uh, in, the, the the movement for life. Uh, and I think it's really, really important. Otherwise, you'll see this thing slip backward in a way um, that I think would just be really bad for the country. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that
0: I noticed, Chris, in that regard is we've got to educate and inform ourselves. I can't tell you how many Christians that I run into who are pro-choice just based on talking points that you hear from the left. I mean, nothing. And these are leaders. That are just giving you talking points. And so we need to turn around to and speak to the Christian community and say, hey, let's let's reset on this, because I know this is the position that seems to be if you're if you know, if you're getting your opinions from pop culture, that seems to be compassionate. But let's look at what's really happening here. And again, can Christians completely disregard the life of the unborn? and that's you that's generally what it comes down to but until you make that case clearly and you have different messengers with different uh levels of credibility uh to, to be frank uh you're you're going to struggle through that now now one of the other things that you mentioned that I thought was good was the regional aspect of this a lot of folks and I talked about this on on Christianity today's bulletin too a lot of folks want to make these sweeping you know uh uh analyses about what happened all over the country i don't know that this lends itself to that as much as you said in georgia republicans did great they took it they took home everything outside of that one uh senate race right which we know is going to a runoff in florida which we'll talk about a little bit later too they wrecked shop in florida right you saw some folks do good in new york you saw some folks doing good in california so i don't know there is some variance there that i think we need to pay attention attention to and maybe it is promising Maybe that is 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 a good thing that we're seeing. But let me say this, though, Chris, because I think this could make it very easy for Democrats to get the wrong idea. I think it would be a serious mistake for Democrats to start to believe that they earned this. um, Or that this is somehow an endorsement of their current current course, if Democrats don't think that they need to come up with better responses to crime, Uh, Or they think they can just act like crime doesn't exist and people aren't going to see it and know it and they're just going to believe that, okay, I, I just saw, you know, two murders down the street, but you're telling me it didn't happen. So it obviously didn't happen. If they think they can do that, they're in trouble. If they think that they don't need better housing policy for the urban housing crisis that is going on in major Democratic strongholds all over the country, they're in trouble. If they don't think they need to have, deal with the, this education crisis coming out of the pandemic in a better way and need better education policy, they're in trouble. If they think that they can double down on their attacks on parental rights and continue with this forceful transgender madness, they need new lenses because that's not at all the message that the people that I can tell the people were sending in this midterm. What happened in this midterm for what I can tell? was about Trump in part, was about January 6th in part, was about the craziness, the dysfunction and the disorder, and also about people like Mitch McConnell who don't think you need to come up with policy when people are hurting. That does not mean people were endorsing the Democratic Party. If you look at the president's favorability ratings, if you look at what people are thinking about crime, if you look at what people are thinking about the the economy, those are still major issues. They might not have held the day. But if you begin to think that you did something, that it was the Democrats that actually really just earned this and that voters are in
1: love with them, I think they miss it. What, what are your thoughts on that, Chris? I mean, I, I think it's 100 percent true. I, I will speak from the place where I know the most about, which is Illinois politics. Uh, we had as a gubernatorial candidate, one of those candidates that the, that the Democrats boosted in the primary uh, over, you know, some potentially better candidates in the Republican primary. He's still got 43% of the vote. And this is somebody who refused throughout the entire election to just say that that Joe Biden won the 2020 election. Uh, this is somebody who did a rally uh, with Donald Trump and said that when he was governor, that the state of Illinois was going to roll out the red carpet for Donald Trump. Uh, this is somebody who consistently referred to abortion uh, on the stump as genocide, you know, just really didn't necessarily have a, a very compassionate approach. I, I would say didn't talk about the pro-life issue the way that I, that I do, right, um, out on the stump, and still got 43% of the vote, still uh, outperformed Donald Trump in the Chicago area uh, in, in in this election. And so, you have to look at something like that and you say a better candidate in the same election, same cycle, might beat this Democratic incumbent governor. Same thing you were talking about with, with Warnock uh, down in Georgia. A better candidate might win these races. I, I think you know I, I, I had the, uh, the pleasure, I'll call it the pleasure, of, of actually meeting uh, Adam Laxalt in the course of this, uh, this last election cycle. And again, I'm going to say just like slightly better candidates with like slightly less uh, fringe ideas about things. I mean, you know, uh, cutting Social Security and expanding uh, access to high powered assault rifles and things like that. Like if you if you change those dynamics, I think Democrats are having a much worse night. Uh, And so I 100 percent agree with you that Democrats cannot learn from this. That everybody's really excited about what they're doing. Uh, Even even the the youth vote, I think the youth vote came out uh, one on the abortion issue, but also on uh, the the student loan forgiveness, which is currently paused. Right. (laughs) So, you know, there's a lot of work to get done and, and Democrats have to see that.
0: As Christians, you know, we're called to understand the difference between something that is earned and something that's a gift. Uh, I think that uh, the Democrats should probably understand something. The difference right now between an election that was a gift, an election that was earned. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the right reverend uh, Christopher Butler. All right, so we just talked, gave our our, our midterm analysis. Hopefully, uh, folks got something out of that. But there's something else that's big that's pretty that's coming up pretty quickly. And that is, well, I think, today. I think today, uh, Chris's favorite president, President Trump, is supposed to be announcing that he's going to be running for president for the third time. Take that in. That uh, President Trump says he's supposed to be announcing today, and it may be tomorrow by the time you hear this that he's running again. Before I get into that, I want to talk about something I saw this weekend that I thought was pretty good. Dave Chappelle, aka the Goat of Comedy, gave what I thought was a masterful, really a brilliant monologue on Saturday Night Live this weekend about anti-Semitism and separately about Trump. Now, if you haven't seen it, Watch it before you get mad at me and start whining and do all that. Just watch it first and see what he said. All right. Don't just listen to what, you know, some of the uh, folks in mainstream media are putting out there. Watch it for yourself. Now, I'll be straight up, Chris. I'm pretty much a free speech absolutist when it comes to comedians. You ain't got to laugh. You ain't got to like it. But it's hard for me to trust someone that wants to silence comedians. It makes me seem like you might have something to hide. We need those satirical truths. Comedians can confront certain really important issues in a way that communicators like myself might not be able to address as effectively. Uh, and, and I say that in, in all humility. I think there's something about a comedian addressing a very tense issue that's very hard to get from just a regular orator uh, like myself and Chris. Um. I think Chappelle had an incredible insight about the political rise of Trump. And this is what he said in his monologue. He said this. He said, I'm watching the news now and they're declaring the end of the Trump era. A lot of you, he said, and this is paraphrasing, but he said a lot of you don't understand why Trump is so popular and why he was so loved. He said that Trump was an honest liar who told the truth about a system that was set up to help the powerful. Trump openly admitted as much during his 2016 uh, campaign debate against uh, against Hillary Clinton when he said that I know the system is rigged because I use it. Right. I, I was part of the. I know the system's rigged because I benefited from the way that it's rigged. The comedian then joked about how how um, how Trump a Q was accused during the uh, same debate of not paying his taxes. And his response to that was, well, that makes me smart because this is the way they set it up for me and your friends. And this is how it's going. He also said something like, look, they're not going to change anything because their friends benefit from it. I know about it. I've used it. I'm going to change it. Right. And, And so that's how he kind of communicated with the people Trump basically told them that he already knew what was going on behind the scenes. He verified what people thought was going on behind the scenes and didn't sugarcoat it or absolve himself. Right now, I know a lot of us like to, you know, we we have the same kind of narrative. It's easy to blame the whole election on racism. And I'm not going to deny that. That wasn't a part of it for some people. But we also have to realize, Chris, that. Whether you want to realize it or not, or whether you want to give up that part of the narrative, we did have a black president two times in a row. There were people who voted for a lot of a significant amount of people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. So while racism probably played a role in this, it's not the whole story. And we can't be afraid to walk away from a narrative a little bit to see what really happened. I think it was bigger than that to some people. Now, obviously, I disagree with the conclusions that some people drew from what Trump was saying. But I do think it is important to try to understand why people were thinking what they were thinking. And sometimes we can lean on the same old narratives over and over again and actually miss the reality. I think that had something to do with why people were feeling Trump. Now, needless to say, there are a few things that I want less than to see Trump back in the Oval Office. To be worried every day about what he's going to say next, how he's going to talk about a certain group of people, to see the church once again do to itself what it did to itself in trying to support and defend that man. That's the last thing I want to see. So I'm certainly not saying that. But we need to consider what's going on here beyond some of the easy answers that we always provide. Doesn't mean that all the easy answers are wrong, but we need to think through this. What happens to us if this happens again? Now, my, my personal belief is based on what happened in twenty twenty, based on what happened last week, he's not gonna win. I cannot say that he's not gonna win the primary. Chris, what's your analysis on this if Trump runs again? If we get that announcement today.
1: Well maybe I'll start uh where where you left because I, I, I think that I take the uh I, I read it the other way. I think if he runs, he probably I'm not sure he gets the nomination but I think if he gets the nomination he wins the election. Um I think that uh th- there are enough people who want to see something change uh at the at the presidential level and even if you look at this, this this election this election came down to candidate quality. But I think that candidate quality piece has to do with the fact that you know, a lot of these candidates don't have the political skill set of Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump, I think, uh, was just, if I can be honest, not that great of a, of a president, of a chief, chief executive. But as as a lover of the sport of politics, I mean, there have been few more talented political um, actors, uh, than Donald Trump. He, he knows how to, uh, eat his political opposition for breakfast, um, in a way that I think most of the folks that he supported in, in these elections, uh, don't. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's the issue is because his, his political rhetoric, you know, frankly, I, I, I thought, a, I thought a lot of his political rhetoric going into his 2020, 2016 election was actually Spot on. I mean, the the stuff that that uh, that Chappelle was talking about, the the way that he talked about the system being rigged, promised to to uh, change it. I mean, the, the the failure of the Trump presidency is that he didn't do any of those things, right? Uh, you know, that's kind of the big issue. But I I think if if he announces his 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 election, it's it's troubling for me. And and really, honestly, maybe I'm I'm more wishfully thinking about him not winning the the Republican Party nomination. Because I I really think that with these midterms coming out the way that they did, Joe Biden, unless he is, you know, physically unable, uh, will run again. And I think that that will be bad for the Democratic Party. I think that Donald Trump beats Joe Biden in a rematch. I think almost any person who has a shot at getting the Republican nomination beats Joe Biden. Who would be better
0: than who would be better than Joe Biden, though, from the Democrat?
1: Nobody. That's what I'm
0: saying. okay. I think that I don't I don't think I don't think Donald I don't think he I don't think Trump can beat Biden. It'll I mean, it could be very close. I don't see him winning Georgia, for instance. I don't see him coming back and and winning Georgia.
1: Here's what I say. I, I think that for Republicans, for Donald Trump, the 2024 election is going to come down to if they learn the real lesson, because I think with all the stuff that we've said about the economy, about jobs, about abortion, uh, about uh, election deniers, the the main lesson that Republicans have to learn from this midterm is that you can even if you keep with like the election denialism, which I think you should drop. But if you but if you don't drop election denialism, you got to find a way to bring early voting into your narrative, right? If you cannot get your people to vote early uh, and to use the, the available mechanisms for voting, most of which I support, I mean, and I know a lot of my like, more conservative friends don't like this part of my politics, but I've long been an advocate for making voting uh, easier, I just I really believe that we should do that, and you know, there's a, a a good article in the New York Times where they're discussing something that literally happened on election day. So this is not even early voting on election day, Maricopa County uh, in uh, Arizona, where obviously Republicans came very close to winning that governor's race, um, even a little bit close to winning that Senate race, and. A lot of people think that a lot of that came out of Maricopa County where they didn't get as as much vote as they should have got. On Election Day, it's the morning of Election Day. Uh, I'll I'll just read this uh, uh, from, from The New York Times. It was early on Election Day when polling places in Maricopa County started experiencing a glitch. Tabulation machines were rejecting thousands of ballots as a result of a printer error and confusion was causing lines and frustration at the polls. But there was a simple fix. Voters could place their ballots in a secure box called box number three, kept at the, at every polling station for just these situations. Their votes would be counted later at the central tabulation center. Um, skip down a little bit. Republicans, uh, began warning voters early in the morning away from those boxes as suspicions flew across Twitter and right wing media. Do not trust them. Charlie Kirk. The conservative leader warned his Twitter followers, right? So Maricopa County, day of the election, machines are not working. People are there at the polls and you got folks telling them not to vote. Like you can do the election denial thing if you want to. You got to figure out how to stop telling your people to not vote. The reason Raphael Warnock is in the Senate is because when the runoff happened last time in Georgia, Donald Trump spent the entire runoff telling people not to trust the election and not to participate in the election. I don't see how anybody thinks they're going to win elections by telling their supporters not to participate in that election. Yeah. But
0: now even, so I think that was the case in 2020, but now you had a lot of folks just even crossing over. Some voted for Kemp and Warnocker. Some just voted for Kemp and didn't vote at all for for Walker. I think that reflects to to some extent on, On Trump, so we'll have to see. I think one of the big things that you can't count out now, and this is the other thing that I wanted to bring up, is Ron DeSantis. Do not discount what Ron DeSantis just accomplished in Florida. Ron DeSantis had the best day possible last Tuesday. There, there, you couldn't have written this better if he if he wrote it himself, right? I would call it basically, (laughs) right. He basically single handedly took Florida off the map for Democrats. And in in 2018, he beat Andrew Gillum by 0.4 points, 0.4. Last week, he won by almost 20 points. He turned Miami-Dade red by winning 55% of that vote. The last time uh, he ran, he lost 21% there, by 21 points there, right? That's a big deal now. Trump is still Trump. Trump still has a large part of the Republican base. For the first time, though, in polls within the last couple of days, and this could fade away, DeSantis is beating Trump. The reason that I know where a lot of Democrats are afraid of DeSantis is because the narrative now, and everybody's saying it, everybody's all emotional. They're the same thing. He's just a smarter Trump. I don't think we know who DeSantis is, other than that that he is a opportunist the only thing smoking in the republican party was to jump on the trump train desantis effectively does that but when i look at presidential history when i look at political history that does not necessarily tell us what he's really going to do or what he is if you look at some, i mean from raising the um minimum wage and stuff like that We don't yet know, so I'm just keeping an eye out. I've seen things from Ron DeSantis that are unacceptable to me, which is arresting some folks who are for felons who legitimately thought they could vote. Uh, Some of his interactions with folks who were protesting—all that—not cool. However, I want people to think about this because y'all get too deep into the narratives that are being thrown out on Twitter and the narratives that you're hearing from mainstream media. Chill out for a second, because if we look at political history. Lyndon Baines Johnson was a segregationist. Uh, President Carter was a segregationist. Folks do what they have to do to get to where they want to go. He could be worse than I think he is. He could be worse than what he's shown. So this isn't as far from an endorsement. But looking at political history, you got to keep your eye on it because all we know is that he jumped on a train, which I think was unacceptable to jump on. But that doesn't mean that he really is Trump. He could be worse. It could be a lot of different things. I think you got to keep your eye on it because history tells us that people can hide themselves behind certain movements and pop out and be something very different. Let's close this out real quick. What, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the big question is what does Ron DeSantis see about Ron DeSantis and these numbers? Because I, I think that the... That Ron DeSantis represents the greatest threat to another Donald Trump presidency, and I would argue, if I if I could argue to Ron DeSantis that perhaps what his election night says is that he actually has something to offer, um, and and can maybe get off that Trump train because the Trump train didn't do too hot on on Tuesday. Uh, so you know, does he have? The uh, the ambition, the confidence, and did he learn something about himself and his organization in this election that would give him the confidence uh, to go and do it? I do think uh, presidential hopefuls make a mistake. And it's not just a president. I, I say this to people. And maybe this will be a help to people who listen to the church politics podcast. Uh, Elections are very much about opportunity. And if you skip your opportunity to do it, it may not come back around again. So you got to strike when, when your moment is there,
0: you got to take the opportunity and let's be honest, president Obama was against gay marriage when he ran, you know, for for president, when he ran for Senate, he he really wasn't right. So before y'all start crying and freaking out because you think, you know, exactly what's going on. You don't know what's going on. These folks, have very deep strategies that are going on. Chill and just watch. I think it'll reveal itself. But watch and see what happens to just say, oh, no, he's Trump, too. He's exactly like him. Guys, this dude's had a whole life outside of what Trump's doing. He jumped on that train. I think he was wrong in a lot of ways for that. But you got to watch to see what's going to happen, because if he ends up running against them, there's going to be some distinctions drawn there. And it's going to be interesting to see. So uh, we got to get, we got to get going, uh, get to this last uh, segment. We will be right back on the church. Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Chris, we're going to keep this one short, but I do want to I want to ask you very quickly, what does a political party win mean to you? So we see people during the midterms and understandably people are excited when their party wins or their party does better than, than expected. But what really is the value of that at the end of the day? At that very moment when they win, no policies have been changed. You don't know whether they're going to they're be responsible or not. To me, rather than being too celebratory about it, it really means it's a time to hold people accountable and speak into the process to speak into your party to speak into it rather than just saying yeah we won this is great the republicans aren't going to take over the democrats aren't going to take over now we can go for the next two years and just do something else and you know maybe comment every now and then but not really be paying attention what what does a political victory on election day really mean to you
1: i mean to me it it means uh, not very much uh, i'm not super partisan in that way. Unfortunately, I do think to too many people, it means, you know, Hey, we got the government in the hands of the right people. Now I can check out and go do something else. We're actually getting ready to do something here in the Chicago chapter of the end campaign, right on these lines. Right. So we're going to uh, do a survey with, with clergy and ask, all right, the Democrats won everything. Uh, What do we expect the Democrats to do? Uh, And then, We're going to on on a monthly basis just update is any of this stuff that we hoped would come from electing all these Democrats. Is any of it happening? Um, And so hopefully it'll be an opportunity for folks to really think differently about what this question that you're asking. That I think is an incredibly important question.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, that's that's just really low level politics to be super excited about a party win with all the different directions they could go with all the different positions that they could take or not take. It's gotta be our, our politics has to be more than, Oh, we won. They lost.
1: Yeah. I, I wrote about it uh, for the Chicago chapter and I, I posted it uh, for our patrons. Uh, but the last time J.B. Prinsker got elected, there was a lot of hope because, you know, the Republicans were out and all that kind of stuff. What we got in the state, we got commercial marijuana. We got abortion expansion. Um, and, we got a failed attempt at a, uh, an expanded tax. That was, man. that was it.
0: That's real. Uh, well, that's all we got for the church politics podcast. I hope you enjoyed it again for those who are supporting us on Patreon, man, you're going to get extra episodes. You're going to get articles. You're going to get a whole bunch of stuff. So tune in that also check us out on YouTube. We got to get our YouTube numbers up. We just started posting these things to YouTube so you can see us along with hearing us, but as always y'all know what it is man we really appreciate you uh and camp there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear there's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world politic with the boldness and compassion of jesus christ until next time and count well, somebody say kingdom. kingdom
1: kingdom oh lord i say kingdom